If you do me a favor and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, that's where we're going to be. We're starting a new series uh, this Sunday, and it will carry us through about the rest of the summer, about eight weeks. Uh, it's going to be a series that we jump in and out of. Basically, I want to take story by story, so not quite verse by verse, but story by story through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. That is a lot of material, and so we're not going to just go all the way through it. We're going to hit it and then come back and, and do some other things as well. It's hard sometimes to introduce stories in the Bible. Um, it's easier as, as a preacher, just, just a little bit of my inner monologue, uh, it's easier as a preacher to have sort of a doctrinal idea. I want to talk about peace, or I want to talk about the love of God, or I want to talk about judgment, God forget, forbid, right? Um, whatever we might want to talk about. And then to find stories that kind of plug in and talk about it. It's always rougher to talk about stories. And so I was thinking a lot about First Samuel and, and uh, the story that we find here. Um, but it was hard to focus because this week was wild, wasn't it? It was just wild. Um, two more um, uh, African-American men shot by police officers. Then we see police officers being shot in Dallas. And this, this great civil unrest. And it's come so much a part of our lives that this morning I was driving, I was driving in because I, I come in early. Usually uh, I'm on the road, you know, just, just before 7, 6.45 or so. And I'm, I'm driving in. So the roads are dead. There's rarely anyone. And I saw a cop had pulled somebody over. And, you know, I did the rubberneck. Everyone does it, right? I mean, and I, I'm rubberneck as I go by. And I see that it is a young um, black male. And immediately I thought, oh my goodness. I just, it, like, it's just a part of my inner narrative now. Um, and maybe it should have been all along. I, I, I don't know. But it's such a, such a stark contrast we see. It's such a, uh, such a great division that we see. And I've mentioned this before, but, it, you know, over, over VBS, I had a chance to talk with a, with a lady, and she was talking with me about what, it would ex- what the experience was for, for her to come into a white church, because that's what we are white church and I just lament I lament the division in society but to me that's understandable because it's the world I lament the division in the church because that is not understandable that is the world that has crept into our midst if we look beyond our borders uh, and, and hopefully we do that every now and then, you would know that the end of Ramadan has come upon us. And so there are explosions uh, happening all throughout the Middle East, terrorist attacks all over the place. Just, I think it was yesterday, but it might have been two days ago, Vladimir Putin, who's the president of Russia, signed a law that now makes it illegal to share your faith in Russia. If you, if you evangelize in your workplace, invite somebody to church, all of those are offenses that will receive you an $800 fine that will gradually increase uh, along with jail time. They are um, deporting all missionaries. If you are not a part of a state, a state officially sanctioned church is the only church that you are now allowed to worship in, in Russia. And so as we look across the world, I, we, we, see, we see unrest in the church, unrest in America. We see persecution across vast swaths of, and I just think to myself, this world is really, really broken. And it seems weird to then turn to 1 Samuel and talk about the birth of Samuel. It seems like a weird, hard, like gear-grinding transition, but I want to make it because I think there is something important that this text tells us about the world we live in today, about the church that we are supposed to be a part of today, about what God's heart and hunger and desire is to do, not only today, but in the coming kingdom of God, and may it be soon. 
So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm going to begin by just uh, doing nothing fancy, just, just reading the text. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We have a new clicker that is supposed to help. And that was because she did it though, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Still no dice. Guess it doesn't matter which one you buy. Good. All right. Verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. I want to put up a map here just for a second so that you can kind of get in your mind what it looks like. Now, this is the way that God had planned. uh, This is the way that God had planned the people of Israel. This is what they're supposed to look like. It is a loose federation of clans brought together. There is no king. The king was God. And so if at some time there was some kind of issue that they had to deal with, maybe perhaps Moab or uh, Ammon or Edom rose up. Yes, no, Edom, Moab, Ammon rose up and uh, came against them. A judge would rise up. You might think of the book of Judges, Samson, Deborah, Barak, all of these guys. They would raise up the armies, gather together the armies of Israel, go to war against Moab, and then everybody would go back to their hometown. God was king. They were Torah formed. They would follow the laws given down in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and God would protect them. He would be their king and God, and they would be his people, full of his blessings, full of his greatness, uh, full of his glory, and so, therefore, a light to all of the nations. And where we're talking about right now is before all the kings, and this is happening in the hill country of Ephraim, which have been in this area right here. And then they're going to move on to Silo, which is an alternate uh, spelling to Shiloh, which is probably what you'll see in your Bible. So here's actually also a picture um, of the hill country of Ephraim. That's what it would look like today if you were there. If you want to head back to the map for me, please. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts here uh, at Shiloh. Where the two sons of Eli, who is the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, And to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, babe, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not better than ten sons? That was my wife snorting. (laughs) That was not planned either. It is difficult for me to put myself in Hannah's place because um, obviously I don't know what it's physically like to really want a child. Um, 
I, as I read this story, immediately kind of see myself in, in Penina's place because I could see, I can kind of see where she's at. Imagine uh, there's a man and he loves his wife very much, but they can't have children, so what's the solution? The solution in ancient Israel was you marry somebody else and you have more children. And so Penina is brought into this relationship knowing that her only reason for being there is she is to make babies. That's it. And when she does make babies, we still read in this text that where is his love going? Hannah. You have to understand, too, that when we talk about tithing in the Old Testament, we talk about the feasts of the Lord, God brings together all of these, he calls all of these different tribes together, all of them from all over, uh, all over Israel, and they're all going to gather down here in Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle's going to be, and all of the tribes are going to line up around the tabernacle, and there's going to be a week-long feast. I mean, when you think of the God of the Old Testament, you should think of the God who throws quite a party. Because the great feasts that, the, that these, these Israelites would have, I mean, they would be week-long. You would bring the tithe in the best of your flock. If you were too poor and you, maybe you didn't have a flock, you still were invited in. It was this great, like, like potluck dinner, like golden corral, only everything's free. You just line up and you just eat and eat, and it's a week of celebration. Thanking God for all that he has done, that he has provided for you, he has protected you, and that you remember that the covenant you have with him is to continue to keep his laws. And that's the worship. When you brought your animal in and you sacrificed him, you killed him on the altar, it wasn't like God came down and, and like made a taco out of that goat or something. The, the meat would have been taken a little bit by the priest, but the rest of it would have gone out to the people, and they would celebrate and eat together. And so here you are, Peninnah, with all these children, all these sons and daughters. You've borne them all for Elkanah, and you're sitting down at the table, and Elkanah's gone through this great golden... Do they have golden corrals here? Is that a thing? Or is that a Tennessee... That's a Tennessee thing, but I don't know if it's... You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Okay, good. I don't want to lose anyone with my metaphors. So uh, he goes, Elkanah goes out down through and he's plate after plate after plate and he's, he brings it all and he lays it down and he lays before Peninnah and all her children in front of all of them a single portion and then to Hannah who is sitting by herself because she has no children heaping portions. You have done all this for him and he dishonors you. Not in front of just your children but in front of your parents your house, your clan, all of Israel sees Hannah gets double and you get single. And so what does she do? What she do? Lashes out. She lashes out. Because that's what we do, isn't it? You had a bad day at work, but do you get to tell your boss off? No. So what do you do? You keep it holed up inside the car. You might be shouting and screaming in the car and punching your steering wheel as well. But you get home and you unleash it on your wife, on your kids, on your husband. You release it on the dog that got in the way. You vent and you fume because, because it can't go in the direction that you want it to go. We do this, don't we? In fact, as I, as I, see, as I see the news, um, which I steer clear of as much as I can these days... Uh, All I see are people lashing out at the people who never did them any harm. Because you can't lash out at a nameless, faceless evil called injustice. It's hard to do. And so we take all of it and we pour it out. Because hurt people, as cliche as it is, do what? Hurt people. 
And that's what, that's what Peninnah does. Is it Hannah's fault? Is it Hannah's fault that, that, that Elkanah went and, and married somebody else? No. Is it Hannah's fault that she can't have children? No. But Peninnah unleashes it on the one person who doesn't seem to be able to or willing to do anything about it. And that's what we do. We take our fuming, we take our anger, we take our hurt, and we send it on somebody else. What about Elkanah? What about Elkanah, <laughs> right? I, uh, I love that line. I laugh every time I, I, I read it in, in verse, verse 8. Because I have seen Laura cry. We've been married long enough, and she's a crier. I mean, she's a crier. It's like you just imagine saying, aren't I better than you, to you than, than, ten, than ten sons? And I can just see her looking up at me with that face that says, you're stupid, get out of the room. Like, that's just what I see. You need to leave now. We'll talk again later, right? Because I don't know a lot about w- women. I, I don't know a lot about what's going on in their minds, but I know more than Elkanah. That was a dumb thing to say. Take note, men. <laughs> what kinds of marriage advice happening here today? What I find interesting about Elkanah is that he has married Peninnah, and this is something we say, we remember with Abraham, Abraham, the promise comes from God. He says, you're going to be a father of many nations. You're going to have so many kids that if you look up at the stars, there'll be more than that. You look at the sand and the seashore, like you can't count it. That's how many your offspring, that's how many children you're going to have. And he says, all right, great. I'm kind of old, though, so let's get this thing moving, Right? But Sarah's not moving, nothing's happening, and so he takes Hagar. He, he, he takes the will of God and he sort of circumvents it, he skirts it, and don't we do that? Don't we do that? Things aren't happening fast enough, and so we force it. We say, well, I, you know, I, I guess I'll do it this way. We, we wait for God and we wait for God, and then a day goes by, and, and God hasn't answered my prayer, and so, I'll, well, then I guess I'll just take it into my own hands. And what happens when we take it into our own hands? Mess. Right? We make a mess of it. Now, what's interesting to me about this story, too, is that this isn't happened just once. It isn't that Hannah has prayed one time and God has answered her prayer. What did it say? Year after year, they went up and they did this song and dance. Peninnah would get a lot, or Peninnah would get a single portion, Hannah would get a double portion. She would, she would vex her sorely, if you like your old uh, King James Version language. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that's used there as, as Peninnah is vexing her, he vex her to, vexes her, he teases, she teases him. Okay, get your pronouns right. She teases her, pokes at her, prods at her to such an extent that the Hebrew word used there is that she thunders. It's like a thunderstorm. That's the kind of pain that she's feeling. And Elkanah does not have the patience to wait on God. If he had the patience to wait upon God, something miraculous and powerful would happen just as we see that is a part of God's will. God wants something miraculous and powerful. But let me say to you that anything miraculous and powerful that's given by God will come on God's timetable and never, never on yours. It won't come on your timetable. And if you try to pressure God, it's not going to work. I mean, try pressuring God, right? I mean, it's kind of a silly thing to do anyway. 
Try circumventing God and you'll make a mess. The only option for you, if you want to put your faith, and we use that word a lot, don't we, faith? If you want to put your faith in something secure, something powerful, something true, something that can produce something that is wonderful and miraculous and life-giving, put your faith in God. Wait on the Lord and he will renew your, your ways. We see some important doctrine here, uncomfortable things, things that um, we might not like. It says here, uh, he gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her, but the, the Lord had closed her womb. She noticed that. Again, we're talking about God's plans. Uh, Hannah wanted children, but God said, no, now is not the time for it. Now, I know that we want to take and, and, and take a human view of this, and we want to sort of explain it away and make it easier for us and say, well, you know, maybe the ancient people, they didn't know about uh, progesterone levels. I can't believe I know about that. Um, and uh, they didn't know about these things, and so they're just using their own, their own human expressions and, and ways of thinking to describe what's happening to them. Now, like, don't, don't wiggle out us. Don't do that to Scripture. It says what it says. It says that God had closed her womb. He stopped her from having children. We see this throughout the scriptures. God permits the suffering of Job. Sarah doesn't have children because God said, now is not the time. Elizabeth in the New Testament doesn't have children because now is not the time. Mary isn't married yet. He says, now you're going to have a child because now is the time. Right? God has will and purpose and thought. And I think this is why Jesus says, when you begin praying, the disciples come to Jesus. And what's interesting about that whole story, um, just as a side note, is the disciples knew how to, I mean, they all went to synagogue their whole life. Their whole life they had been praying and speaking and reading and reciting scripture together and going to Torah camp and all of that stuff. And they come to Jesus and they say, we want to hear from you how to pray. And Jesus says what? Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And I think Jesus says this not because it's really important to God that if Jordan, that Jordan prays, thy will be done. Because if Jordan doesn't pray today, thy will be done, it's not going to get done. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Doesn't seem that that's what God's up to. Doesn't seem to me that God is hinging and waiting upon me to pray, God, let your will be done before God gets his will done, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Rather, it seems that the reason Jesus is, 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 is initiating our prayer life with this line is so that we could understand that God's will is the will we should be chasing. Not that we don't have desires, not that we don't cry for justice, not that we aren't hungry and hurting and in need, but that when we pray, your will be done, God, all of the desires of our heart can be submitted to the will of God, and by being submitted to the will of God, they can travel the way that is best, because God has a will. We see in verses like this, in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Nice little rhyme there. Job 13.13-14, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. And then Philippians 4. And this is an important, uh, uh, important, whoa, an important text, I think. In Philippians 4, 
we read to not be anxious about anything. You guys memorized this when you were when you were kids, when you went to Bible camp, like that. You, you memorized these verses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, so that the peace of God, right? Because we're we're sending these requests, we're sending these supplications, and supplication is to directly entreat God. God, I need this from you. God, please give this to me. In everything, giving it to God so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, can guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now this is, I think, the most critical thing to understand in our circumstances today, that we have many desires, we have many needs, we have many things that we, we want to chase after and pursue, but all of those things should be given to God, but without the expectation that God is a divine vending machine, that if you drop the right quarter in, somehow he'll spit out everything you want. Again, your happiness is not the apex of God's plans. God will accomplish his purposes, and he deeply desires to use you to accomplish those purposes. He wants to do something in your life, but the more that we fight against him, the more anarchy and chaos we inject into our families and into our lives and into our jobs and into our churches rather than submitting ourselves to the will of God and of course giving everything to God and allowing then once we have given it to God God and his will to establish in our hearts and minds peace peace and isn't that what we want isn't what we want peace Hannah prays an important and powerful prayer. Um, verse 9, so back to, that's why I was looking at Colossians. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter not, 1, verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give, if you will give me, give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of, my li- of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That's a, uh, 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 an allusion to Numbers chapter 6 in the Levitical uh, Um, The Nazarite vow. Verse 12. As she continued to pray before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved. Her voice could not be heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you be going on drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition, the petition that you made him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose then in the early morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. In in the due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now it's significant here that Hannah, rather than Peninnah, who took her, her pain and her frustration and poured it out, Hannah does not look at her husband and blame her husband. 
She doesn't look at Peninnah and, and react in kind. She doesn't uh, you know, go tit for tat. She doesn't uh, respond with, with prodding her and saying, well, look at my double portion, huh? Mmm, extra pizza, you know, or whatever one would do at that time and with that food. She goes to the Lord and she worships before him. Do you see her prayer? I mean, that was a prayer of humility. How many times did she say, your servant, to God? She doesn't rage against God. She doesn't rail against God. She doesn't blame God. She doesn't say, God, why did you close my womb? God, why didn't you give me what I want? She doesn't do any of that, although we do see that sometimes in Scripture. And I don't think it's, it's, it's false to say that God can handle our anger. I think God can handle our anger. But I want you to see the example we have here in Hannah, that she puts herself in a position. Remember last week we talked about worship. Bowing down before God is what she is doing in this time. And she says, remember me. Don't forget me. God hears that humility. God hears that prayer. And, and we don't know why God has waited all this time to bring about the birth of Samuel, who, you know, if you, if you haven't noticed, like the book's named after, so he's kind of a big deal, right? She, God wants to give Hannah a son. He wants to give Hannah a son at his time, during his plan, for his good purposes, And she submits herself before him, and she says, your will be done. She certainly asks, she supplicates, she, 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 she entreats God for this thing that she deeply wants and needs, the, 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 the pain to be removed. When trials and suffering come, that is when we find out often who is faithful to God. We've been going through... Um, a, a series in, in the church in, in the Sunday school class I teach um, on church history, and it's just amazing to see what the founders of the faith, all the way back to the first few centuries, endured to share the faith, to spread the faith. I mean, they were thrown to lions, they were lit up as torches for garden parties, they were persecuted and driven throughout the world, killed and sacrificed. And all of the time, they did it proclaiming the name of, of Jesus Christ. This powerful faith that is lived out here as an example here in Hannah's own life. Hannah has incredible faith, but you should have more. Hebrews brings this to light. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 say this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, I want, I want you to think about this story for a second in terms of Hannah. Hannah is, is praying, and she's praying with such intensity. There's no noise, but she's, she's really in it. And Eli sees her and says, this woman is disturbed. Something's wrong. And he assumes the worst and says, you know, you're, you, you must be drunk. And so Hannah pours out the issue to him. She doesn't go into all the detail, but says, I know I'm deeply disturbed. And all that Eli can do for her is to say, I hope God gives it to you. I hope God gives it to you. When we go to our high priest, according to Hebrews, when we go to Jesus Christ, we have someone who can do more than just say, I hope God gives it to you. You understand that, right? We have one who is able to sympathize, which is he is omniscient. His knowledge is complete. So when you pour out your heart to God, God knows your thoughts. He feels your pain. He experiences all that you are experiencing. He knows it on the deepest level. He is able to sympathize with it in the core of his being, even more so because Jesus took on flesh, didn't he? Jesus knows what it's like to be shamed. 
He knows what it's like to be broken. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to experience injustice. He knows what it's like to be spit upon, to be punched, to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to die. So when we read, we have someone who is able to sympathize with us. And we look at Hannah and we say, man, look at the shadow that she had. All she knew was the covenant of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All she knew was this God who would covenant with his people. And if she served him, he would be gracious to, to, to her. You know so much more. You know the son of the living God who has poured his spirit into your heart. Who has said, come to me and ask of me and I will give it to you. Who has said, with confidence come before the Lord. And that's what we see in this next part of this verse. So if that's true, if, if the Son of God knows you intimately, has walked the path that you've walked, has experienced your experience, and says, come to me, bring all of your burdens to me, what should we do? We should, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace and help when? In our time of need, when it's blackest, when it's darkest, when it's most broken, when it's most unjust, when it's most painful, we can go to God with confidence, knowing that he hears our prayers and experience what we read there in Philippians chapter 4, that the peace that passes understanding, it's so deep, the peace that God can give to you, that you couldn't explain it to somebody who has not experienced it. If you're a Christian here and you know what I'm talking about, go ahead, that's an amen moment, right? If you've experienced the peace of God that guards your heart, against the negative emotions, against the bitterness, against the hate, against the, the things that take root in your heart and make you a bitter and hateful person. God can protect you from that. Against the false things that will enter into your mind, the temptations, the ideas to, to lash back and to fight back rather than to take on the cross and walk the life of peace and love that God wants to represent himself to all of this broken world so that they can see that gospel and be transformed by it. God can do all of that if you offer to him your prayers and supplications. So bring it all to Jesus. Do we used to sing that song? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He's a friend that's well known. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone because he knows, he knows, he knows. And only he is able to do anything about it. I want you to notice the faith that Hannah has here as well. And what does she do? She takes the sadness off of her face and she goes and she eats. She believes God will now accomplish his will. She's laid it before God and she said really very much what, what Jesus said in action, if not in words, really what Jesus taught us, say, thy will be done. It's up to you now, God. And I am going to walk in faith and trust for you, in you. And what we have here, I think, is something that is, is a powerful example we see then here coming the birth of Samuel, which is, which is so instrumental um, in the rest of, of what we'll see. This great man of faith. This great faith that Hannah has as she, as she fulfills her vow. And she brings Samuel uh, to the, the temple. And there he serves the Lord for the rest of his life. But I want you to notice Hannah's song in chapter 2. 
And I want you, even if, you, if, you, you know, if you're a Bible reader at home on Sunday after, after church, and I hope you all are, I want you to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and also go back or go forward to Luke chapter, um, chapter, chapter 1 and read the Song of Mary. And notice the connections between the two, the Song of Mary and then the Song of Zechariah. And you'll see there's a great deal of connection. Because Hannah is in a broken situation. And we are in a broken world. And Hannah's song, I think, represents very well the beating heart of God. That it is through this process of suffering and vindication, suffering and comfort, trial and tribulation, that Hannah is able to give us this beautiful song. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So talk no more very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows. And by him actions are weighed. All that is right, all that is wrong, that is done in the world, God takes it. And he who knows the hearts and searches the hearts and the minds and the spirits of men is able to judge correctly perfectly and what will his judgments produce maybe not today we can't promise it today right and this is the problem that i see the the the, the brokenness that i see happening in the church is that we are we are all the whole world crying out for justice everyone is crying out for justice. in fact if you want to prove god to somebody say do you want justice done and if they say yes because of course they're going to say yes ask them why all we are are animals and beasts there is no justice there is no reason to ever want justice all we could possibly want is vengeance and that only brings more brokenness and so there is a song there is a call that comes out from the church of god all the way back before there was even a kingdom all the way back to this time right here where everything is 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 broken in the world just as it is today where there is as much slavery in the world then as there is today, where there is as much oppression and racism and war and hate and poverty and abuse as there was then there is today. And there is a song that comes out, a song that declares the beating heart, the will of God, and it says this, the bows of the mighty will be broken, but the feeble will be bound up in strength. Those who have been full will hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry will cease to be hungry. The barren has borne seven. But she who is lofty is forlorn. For the, for the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol or the grave and he raises up. He makes rich and he makes poor. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit seats of honor. For the pillar of the earth is the Lord's and the Lord is the one who has set the world upon it. And he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness and they will not prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder from heaven, for the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will judge 
the ends of the earth. This is a message that can't be found anywhere else. It is a message that belongs to the people of God as they embody it, as in this one place. Please, dear God, this is me pleading with you the one place where these kinds of injustices don't exist, but where we struggle with one another to see that there is equality. We struggle with one another to pray and to hurt and to weep and to bind and to help one another. Because we say it all the time, we're family. We need to make it real. Because the truth is that God is coming to judge. He is coming to judge. And the meek will inherit the earth. And the peacemakers will be called the sons and daughters of God. And those who mourn will be comforted. And the merciful shall receive mercy. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will finally have their fill. And the poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of God. Let us pray Let us long, let us proclaim, and let us embody this great good news this morning as we stand and sing this final song.